So let's get into the series squad. Um, what we're doing throughout the series is we're looking at essentially how uh, this group of disciples that Jesus called were, were very different from one another. They were incredibly diverse. Uh, we could say for all intents and purposes, they were a, a ragtag group of people who did not fit in with one another, but they were all willing to lay down their differences for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at Peter and his brother Andrew. Uh, our youth pastor, Tim Warnock, uh, he taught on James and John. Him and his wife, Kara, started their paternity, maternity leave today. They should be having their baby any day now, so be praying for them. And um, then last week, we looked at Simon, uh, the zealot, and then we looked at Matthew and their radical difference in political stances, but how they could lay those things down for the cause of Jesus. And so today, we're going to be looking at really one of the ones that doesn't seem like it fits into this series at all, but we're actually going to be looking at, again, uh, Judas Iscariot. There were two Judases that were in the inner 12 of Jesus' disciples, and um, it's awkward to be the Judas that's not the Judas. Uh, that would be weird. And, and some church historians called that Judas, li literally called him the good Judas. And so there, there was the good Judas, and then there was the Judas that we're going to look at today. And today is going to be a little interesting in that I would like you to be challenged. Um, I don't want to challenge you with any of my ideas, but I would like you to be challenged when you look at Scripture and, and read Scripture with an open heart, uh, a soft heart, but also with a, a critical mind. So not a critical spirit, but a critical mind. Like, God, what is it you're trying to teach us through these things, and what can we learn about Scripture? Um, because sometimes we focus on just one thing, like, okay, Judas betrayed Jesus, but we don't look at the entirety of his life, and then see what we could actually learn from it and how we can grow from it. And so a couple things about Judas. First of all, we don't have any background on Judas before he was called by Jesus to be a disciple. Uh, church history and tradition doesn't teach anything about him. Um, it is likely, however, that he dealt with money. He was probably some sort of an accountant uh, because later on he was doing that for Jesus and stealing money. Most of us know that. Um, that's one thing to keep in mind. We also don't know how Jesus called Judas. We don't have that in Scripture, Jesus going up to Judas and saying, Judas, follow me, and I'll make you a traitor of me. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. Um, there's no call, but we know he was called. And so I, let's just kind of open up Scripture, and I want to tell you a couple things that we need to know and be aware of before we look at the life of Judas uh, and there are some bullet points up on the screen. You can read along if you'd like. And later on, I'd encourage you to look at these in your notes. But so th some things to keep in mind about Judas. Number one, he did leave everything to follow Jesus. So despite how horrible and wretched the things were this guy did, at some point in his life, he actually did leave everything to follow Jesus. Many could not do that, but for some reason, Judas actually did leave everything to follow him. Another thing to note, is that he followed Jesus, not just that initial time, but he actually stuck with him for three years. He followed Jesus for three years, and there was no accolade or benefit to following Jesus. Um, essentially, it was putting you on a road to death. And so Judas did follow Jesus for about three years uh, without any notoriety or benefit from actually following him. And you might say, well, he stole from him. There wasn't a lot of money to steal. A guy with the thievery of Judas could have made a lot more money stealing from much more wealthy people than 
than Jesus, who had no place to lay his head. Um, Judas was actually sent out on mission by Jesus. Jesus sent Judas out on mission. And not only did he send him out, he actually sent him out to proclaim the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. And for all we know, he actually did. And the final thing to keep in mind before we look a little deeper into his life is that Judas himself was given authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And so think about this for a minute. This guy had great opportunity to be one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And again, we're like, oh, I don't even like to hear that because of what he did. And yeah, you're right. And that kind of shows a problem in, in our heart as well. So Let's look at some things about Judas. He actually was trusted by the disciples. And the reason why we know he was trusted is because they were all surprised when he ended up being a traitor. They're like, Judas, you're the one? Like, you're the traitor? They were all actually shocked, which meant that he kept the deceptiveness on the extreme down low. And it was an extreme surprise to the squad, the followers of Jesus, when he actually did... um, become a traitor. But what we know about Judas is is the account of his greatest failure, and we're going to look at that today, and we're going to bring together um, the four Gospels and the book of Acts to look at the story and the account, the saga of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus, and see how that relates to us laying down our differences and actually uniting for the cause of Jesus. And, And I think that this will hit home for a lot of us. So Matthew 26, 1 through 5. Again, the verses will be on the screen. Matthew 26, 1 through 5. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. I am going to be crucified. The disciples never believed or fully grasped or understood this until it happened. But he's telling them again and again and again, this is what's going to happen Verse 3 says, then at the same time, the chief priest and the elders of the Jewish people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So there is a conspiracy now to kill Jesus. One of the reasons they're going to kill Jesus is because Jesus had just resurrected Lazarus from the dead. So he's gaining a lot of steam, a lot of momentum. The religious officials don't want to lose their place of authority, their place of hierarchy within their own system. And so they're going to kill Jesus. And if you're going to kill Jesus, you've got to do it in quiet because it's going to cause a riot. And so don't do it on a holiday. Don't do it in the feast when all the people will be in Jerusalem. We've got to find a private place to arrest him and kill him so no one will know. That didn't work out so well. They all found out. And so there's this plot, the conspiracy to kill Jesus. And it's integral to understand this when we look at the story of Judas. And because they're trying to do it privately, remember that. So meanwhile, at the home of Lazarus, And Mary and Martha, there is a feast that is thrown for Jesus around the same time. And in John 12, we read about this feast. In verse 3, it says, Mary, Mary Magdalene, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, parentheses, he who was about to betray him. There's not really any foreshadowing there. It's like, yeah, he's about to betray him. Um, Judas said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas believes that this immaculate sacrificial act of worship is a waste. And if Mary Magdalene would have just simply donated this ointment, this perfume to Jesus, Jesus could have given it to his disciples and his disciples could have sold the 300 denarii worth of perfume in order to give it to the poor. You ever notice people that are oftentimes very passionate about giving to the poor don't give anything themselves? That, what? Oh, I don't like that, Pastor. It's true. It's just true. Oftentimes, people that are the most passionate, the people that make a fuss about it, are the ones that don't give anything. And so they're actually trying to detract away from the fact that they don't help by saying that people should help. And so it's the people that are helping... They don't talk about it usually because they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart as God leads them to do. And so the Bible says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And so I would encourage all of you to find ways to help those in need, uh, but you don't have to throw a parade about it. Do it in, in private because what God sees in private, he will reward you with. And we don't give to help others for reward. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And so Judas here, he's thinking, I could steal this money. And this is really the first revealing of Judas's character. It's not until Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life, that we find out that, that Judas really does have this big heart problem. He's followed Jesus for three years, but is stealing money from Jesus. And so a few days go by. And then the Bible says something it only says twice, and both times the Bible says this, it's in relation to Judas. A couple of days later, it records that Satan enters into Judas. That's a bad day for Judas. You know, you ever have a day where Satan entered into you? That's, that's a bad day, so probably not. I was, um, how many of you enjoy outdoor dining? This is a rough crowd today, so let's, let's loosen up a little bit. Uh, outdoor dining. I got the opportunity to go with my nephew to outdoor dining in a tent outside that was about 35 degrees, and it was pitch dark inside because it's safer there. And, but you can't see what you're grabbing to eat when it's pitch dark. And I didn't know that the nachos I was ordering had like extra, extra, triple extra jalapenos in them. And I'm just barreling in like, I don't know what I'm grabbing or eating because it's pitch dark in this tent. And um, Satan didn't enter into me, but it got pretty close. Um, Okay, now we're ready to keep going. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot who was of the number of the twelve. Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And these Jewish religious officials were glad, and they agreed to give Judas money. Uh, We find out later it's 30 pieces of silver. Not very much money, by the way. They, They agree to give him 30 pieces of silver. So Judas consented And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to the officials in the absence of a crowd. Again, in secret. 
The conspiracy to kill Jesus would have to be that he would be killed in secret. And so Judas knew, because Satan had entered him and influenced him, that these Jewish officials were looking for the right time to arrest Jesus, and he knew that he could lead these guys to a secret place where Jesus could be arrested without incident, and who would know where this secret place was except for one of the disciples? And we're going to learn here that Jesus did have a secret place that he met with his disciples in, and that's why they need his help is because they don't know where Jesus goes at night. So the following day, Jesus gathers with his disciples, including Judas, for the Passover feast. Remember, this is the feast where they don't want to capture Jesus during the feast. So they gather for the feast, and they gather for their last meal together. We call this the Last Supper, where the Lord institutes communion. And Jesus reveals to the twelve and those who were there with them that one of them would betray him. Now, let's read of this account of this awkward dinnertime conversation where the disciples are wondering who indeed would be the one to betray Jesus. And what's fascinating is the ones who did not betray Jesus were actually worried it was them. And I actually like that because it shows the utter humility of their hearts, recognizing that they weren't above sinning. And oftentimes we will look at this and we will say, well, we would never betray Jesus. But we've got to understand that Peter did. Judas did. We all are capable of falling into horrific sin that we would never imagine ourselves doing. That's why when the Bible says when someone falls, we should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And it says, but keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What the Bible is telling us, what Paul is telling us there in Galatians is don't think you're all that when you're not. Because you could be the next target for Satan to enter and tempt you. And if you think you're above it, then you don't have this figured out at all. You need to humble yourself before the Lord and trust in him to keep you from temptation and not in yourself. So John 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of who he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Uh, this is John the, the Apostle. Beloved John. Of course, the one who Jesus loved, whenever that appears in Scripture, it is written by John himself because he just likes to rub it in a little bit. And, and so, but it is relevant because, again, I mentioned this, I think, last week or the week before. In the ancient Near East, people did not sit at chairs, at tables, and eat. They actually laid on the floor next to very short tables, oftentimes made with pillows, and kind of like they actually leaned on their side and ate. Um, that's, that's an interesting way of eating. And so John, when it's like, hey, I'm Jesus' favorite, he really was. He was the closest to Jesus. He was likely around 16 years old. So he's literally leaning up against Jesus while they're eating and he says, who is it, Jesus? You know, you and me, we're close. You can tell me who's going to betray you, and I'll stop him. Is probably what he's thinking. Jesus answered, it's he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he, he dips the bread, likely in some sort of vinegar, and he's going to hand it to the person who is going to betray him. Now, it it's, makes me wonder, does he say this loud for everybody to hear? Can only John hear this? We don't fully understand that. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son 
of Simon Iscariot. And so John knows this is going on, but it still doesn't fully sink in until it actually happens. There's still some confusion here. Jesus says, the one I'm going to hand this to now, that's the one who's going to betray me. And so he does it. And I want to go to Matthew 26, because the different gospel writers record different parts of the event. And so in Matthew 26, verse 25, it says, Judas, who would betray Jesus, answered when he, when he gets the bread, is it I, teacher? Jesus said to him, you've said so. Am I the one who's going to betray you? And you ever notice sometimes when people ask a question, um, like, for example, like, hey, I'm asking for a friend. Is, is it wrong if I do this? It, oftentimes we're talking about ourselves. And, and so Jesus says, you, you're wondering if it's you, and you answered your own question by asking because you know that it is. It's verse 27. After Judas had taken the morsel of bread, Satan entered into him. Now, second time. Satan enters into him. Jesus said to Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling Judas, go and buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. That's ironic. Uh, Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. And it was night. So it's dark as he leaves. And here this tells us that likely no one does hear Jesus say who the betrayer will be. John doesn't fully catch on to it. Jesus says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And they're like, oh, Jesus is sending him to the store. How nice. But he never comes back. So the meal wraps up. The Lord's Supper is instituted. Um, Jesus gives one of his longest teachings um, as he leaves Jerusalem and goes towards the Mount of Olives. And he takes his disciples into what we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. This is literally an olive orchard. Uh, The Garden of Gethsemane is not like a, a garden in our sense of the word. It's an orchard of olive trees. You can go to the exact orchard today. There's still a wall around it with a gate, with a key that's been passed down for centuries where someone has to go and unlock it every time someone goes in. You should go to Israel sometime. You, you can go to this place, and it, it's very, I'd say it's spooky. Um, Brian went with me. It was, it was spooky. And we, um, so spooky, in fact, just walking around the Garden of Gethsemane, there's like little caves in the side of the wall with literally like just skeletons of people um, there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he takes them there. He, he's praying. He's crying out to the Father, and Jesus is saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He does not want to go through the crucifixion, but yet he's God in the flesh. He knows it's the only way he chose to come. But because he's fully God and fully man, he's struggling. So Matthew 26, verse 45, it says, Then he came to the disciples. Jesus did. He'd been praying. They'd been falling asleep. And he said, Sleep and take your rest later on. Guys, it's not time to sleep. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, his term for himself, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Come on, guys, let's get going. Look, my betrayer is here. And again, they had no idea who the betrayer was. They're not really catching on to the fact that Judas isn't there. And it says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs 
from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, this is like a, uh, a big plot twist for the disciples. He says, look, my betrayer is here. And they're, they're looking to expect some, some horrible Roman official, but instead it's one of their own. It's their brother Judas Iscariot is there, and they probably have this collective gasp inside of their heart. And so, as while he's speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, They come with swords and clubs with the religious leaders. And it says, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. Let's go to Luke 22, verse 48. We get more of the story. It says, but Jesus said to Judas, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Back to Matthew 26, Uh, Judas kissed Jesus, and Jesus said to him, friend, that's interesting, isn't it? Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, what's going on? This is something that can be totally lost to culture. Like, I don't don't understand. Why is Judas kissing Jesus? That's, That's bizarre. Well, first of all, in ancient Near Eastern culture and in some European cultures today and Near Eastern cultures today, it is common to greet people with a kiss. Now, it's not a kiss on the lips per se, but it's like a, a kiss on the side of the cheek. How many of you are grateful we don't greet each other with kisses? I am very grateful. Um, and so in the Bible, when it says greet one another with a holy kiss, if you've got a guy that comes into the church like the Lord told me to greet you with a holy kiss, no, you're getting that culturally misappropriated, buddy. Stay back. It's gross. We're not greeting anybody with a kiss here. Um, we're lucky to get a fist bump these days. Uh, and so it's like he greet. This is a common greeting. And so you might have to ask, well, why did they need to hire Judas to do this? Why couldn't they just have done it on their own? One, we already discussed. They did not know where Jesus went privately where he could be arrested without incident. And so Judas goes, I know a place There is this orchard of olive trees where Jesus and and his squad go, and this is where they kind of stay the evening before they go and sleep at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. So this is a place. No one's going to know he's there. It's dark. It's gated. No one can see. So that's number one. Something else that's interesting is it might have actually taken Judas to let them in because this is literally, again, gated. Not just anybody could walk into this place. There was probably a guard. There still is, by the way. And Judas likely knew this guard and like, hey, these guys are with me. We're just coming here to go talk to Jesus on Passover. He lets them in. So he has set Jesus up. There is is deep betrayal here. But why the kiss? Wouldn't the officials have known who Jesus was? I mean, this guy had been making an uproar in society for three years Why wouldn't they know it was Jesus? You ever wonder that? Like, why did they need Judas to show them? They would have known. Here's the deal. It's very dark. Other thing that's interesting to note is that these religious officials likely never got really close to Jesus. People would have had to gather in crowds sometimes of thousands. Remember Zacchaeus? He climbs up into a tree just so he could see Jesus. It would take a lot of work just to get close to him. Uh, but Thomas, the disciple, uh, our assistant pastor, Paul Lehman, is going to talk about him in a couple weeks. But he's known as the twin. And sometimes we think, oh, he had a twin brother, and that's possible. 
But some church history actually says the reason Thomas is called the twin is because he looked identical to Jesus. You ever heard that before? And so Jesus would not have been easy to pick out in a crowd. That's why the Old Testament says he had no beauty that we should behold him in prophecy because he was just a normal-looking guy. And when everybody's got the same beard, the same hair, the same robe, the the same olive-complected skin uh, tone, it's hard to tell people apart. And so Judas sets him up. And the one that I go and I greet first, he's the one for you to arrest. You guys following me? Okay. So, following the arrest in the garden, following Jesus' conviction by the officials for blasphemy, Jesus is handed over to Pontius Pilate for sentencing, where he would be sentenced to death. And this is where we pick up Judas's account. Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. What would we call that act right there? He changes his mind, he goes and he makes restitution. Is it possible we're, we could at least call that regret, right? Maybe repentance. He, he, he literally doesn't just feel bad. He actually goes back to change his mind. And he said, I have sinned. Public confession. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say the son of God. He doesn't say the prophet. He doesn't say the teacher, the rabbi, the Christ. Maybe he doesn't fully yet understand who Jesus really is. And so he just says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Um, At least this is regret. It's confession. And so they said, not our problem, Judas. It's already done. You you take care of your own guilt. And so it says, he threw down the money. He threw it back. I don't want it. That money would have been like a curse in his hands. I just can't handle it. Get rid of this dirty money. And he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. That is like the quickest, um, just there's the quickest rush to just such graphic event. Like he feels bad and then he just hangs himself. Let's look at Acts 1. It describes this event a little bit more after the resurrection of Jesus and after Jesus ascends back to the Father in heaven, the disciples gather to replace Judas. And while they're replacing him, they are telling the account of what happened to him, why he needs to be replaced. It says, Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry with us. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And so what actually happens is the religious officials, when they get the money thrown back at them, they're like, this is blood money. Like, it's okay for us to pay to have Jesus killed, but we can't keep the money. That's pretty messed up, right? Like, we can't keep this money. And so they went and they bought a field to be basically a cemetery for poor people. And so here, this is what the disciples are saying. They say Judas bought the field. He really didn't directly, but the money did. Judas bought the field, and he went to the field. It says he fell headlong, and he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language, uh, Akeldama, that is, the, the field of blood. 
um, what, what's going on? Did he hang himself or did he split in two? I mean, I don't want to be graphic, but essentially he hangs himself. Uh, the body decays. He falls headfirst to the ground. Uh, the decaying of his body causes his insides to, to burst out. It's not a, this is the end of Judas's story. It's actually a very sad story. We look at this sometimes like, what a wretched man. But regardless, this is sad. Any, any life that ends with a tragedy of suicide is, is tragedy. It's, it's sad. There's a lot of questions that we need to ask about Judas. Here's the question that as a pastor people ask me the most. And I'll make it simple. The question is, was Judas saved? You'd say, was Judas a Christian? Another way of asking this, was, is Judas in heaven? You ever thought that or had someone ask that before? I hope you have because it, it means you're really digging into Scripture. You should ask that question. Um, saved is an interesting word because at the time Jesus had not yet died. He had not yet risen from the grave, ascended to the Father in heaven. But Scripture tells us that those who put faith in God, those who put faith in the coming Messiah and trusted in God for their salvation, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was for them as well. That's why when Jesus dies, he actually leads those who are in waiting to paradise with him. So is Judas in paradise? Was the coming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, did that save Judas? It's, it's a good question. Let me, first, let me be the first to answer the question for you. We don't know. We don't know. If someone says to you, no, he wasn't, um, there's a lot of pride in that answer. Someone says to you, yes, he was, there's a lot of assumption in that answer. We don't know. How many of you are grateful? It's not up to you or to me to make judgments about people's salvation. It's not. Thank God it's not. But I, I want to point out a few things. I, I want you to learn how to read the Bible with a very open mind. Like, here, what, do, what do we have to think about here? Number one is this. Jesus always knew that Judas didn't believe. Jesus always knew Judas was a deceiver. Jesus always knew Judas would betray him. Look at John 6, 64. Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So Jesus always knew. Look at verse 70 of John 6. It says, Jesus answered the disciples, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a, what's the word? Devil. Says Satan entered into him. And but one of you is a devil. You're, you're a deceiver. He's not saying that Judas is the devil. He's saying you're a deceiver. And so Jesus knew. That's just something that's interesting to note. Something else is this. Judas has a track record with greediness. He has this, this long-standing behavior of greediness. And we know and we've learned because the gospel writers add these little side notes. Oh, by the way, he'd been stealing from Jesus from the beginning. So he has this track record of sin, and he doesn't seem to have any remorse about stealing from Jesus until the end. Because he does have remorse, but he doesn't seem like he has any until the most wretched thing has been done. Some of you might say, well, Pastor Judas was not saved because the Bible says twice that Satan entered him. That's a good point. Now, technically, the Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out on believers. 
The reason I mention that is because as a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And the Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so if you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, have been saved by his life, death, and resurrection, death and resurrection, you cannot be possessed by demons. You cannot be possessed by Satan himself because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And you might say, yes, but the Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out yet. And you're, yeah, he hadn't. So if Judas was a true believer, like, would the devil have been able to inhabit him in that way? And I would say, no, at that time, he, he wouldn't have. You see, our rebellion against God, our hardened heart towards God, our following of the devil as evidenced by the fruit our life bears, opens up our hearts to the devil. And so while Judas consciously probably did not invite the devil in, um, unconsciously, he did invite the devil in through his very behavior. And so can we say, at the time when the devil entered Judas, was he a true follower of Jesus? And we can actually say, no, he wasn't. And so I say that to give you some confidence that even if you're eating the jalapenos in the pitch dark in the tent, the devil can't enter you. He, as a follower of Jesus, he can't. And the devil, you don't ever hear about the devil possessing people except for here. Demons can't mess with you if you belong to Christ because the one in you is greater than that. Now, here's the, the final thing that I, I think I would like to be the focus. It's just going to be a couple minutes. And this is a triggering thing for, for anybody who's lost someone to suicide. And what really bugs me here is that people will say, no, Judas is not saved. Judas is not in heaven because he committed suicide. Well, I'm glad you are the, the judge of all people's salvation then. Because that's a wretched thing to say that you have no business saying. Committed suicide is an insensitive term. I'd encourage you not to use that term ever, committed suicide. People don't commit suicide. They die as a result of suicide. If you're wrestling with that, wrestle a bit. If you've lost someone to suicide, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's only one unpardonable sin. And the Bible calls that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, Scripture describes the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being persistent, hardened heart and rejection of the Holy Spirit and His power to save you. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. What we call the unpardonable sin. I've had Many tormented Christians come to me and say, Pastor, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I'll say, thank God you haven't because you wouldn't be asking. You wouldn't care if you had. Because that actually shows that you haven't. So I hope that brings some peace to you today. If you're like, have I committed the unpardonable sin? If you've even thought that question, the answer is no. Because it shows you're open and receptive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and wanting to please God. And I would say, no, keep pursuing Jesus. Keep following Jesus. Keep putting faith in Christ. Is suicide sin? Well, the Bible says whatever is not of faith of sin. Of course, suicide itself is sinful. It's the taking of a human life. But Christ died for our past present and future sins. How many of you are grateful for that? 
When I, when I give my life to Jesus, it's not like, okay, all my sins are forgiven, so every day I need to wake up and give my life to Jesus all over again. Well, does that, we're just going to keep letting Christ get crucified for us? That's not how this works. It says Christ died once and for all for sin. You see, one who dies as a result of suicide is suffering from mental illness so severely that they believe suicide is their only way out. If you've ever thought that suicide was your only way out, it's not. It's not. It is not your only way out. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. It's, it's waking up daily and, and dying to your own will, dying to yourself, dying to temptation, dying to sin. If you've ever been tempted to die as a result of suicide, don't raise your hand. I will. How many of you have? Me, me, me. It's a common thought. It's a common enemy to battle. There's a lot to live for. There are so many people to live for. There are so many people to serve. There are so many people to love. There is purpose in your life and in your pain. I know you can't see it now, but there's actually purpose in your pain. There are so many people to reach for Christ. There's joy to be had. There's hope for tomorrow. There is healing in Christ. You can make it through this. You can come out of this better off than what you came in. Suicide's never the answer. Fight to stay alive. You can win the battle with Christ, and you need to reach out for help. And I almost feel like it's such a disservice to just like, we're going to spend five minutes talking about suicide, because we could talk about this for years. But it's never the right, best answer, guys. The question is, am I saved if I die from suicide? The question is, what can Christ save me from now? How can I get help? It might be so painful. I've seen people walk through and live through so much pain, and I've seen them overcome suicide. I've seen many people in our church come through attempted suicides and hospitalizations after attempted suicides. And, and do you know what I think about people like that? They're just like me. We're just like each other because we struggle. We suffer. We're in pain. And it's okay to admit that. Why do you think people don't talk about suicide? It's because they're ashamed to admit that they have struggled with that feeling themselves. But the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says that when we walk in the light as he is in the light, the darkness can't overcome. And so there is no shame in struggling with suicide. There's no shame in struggling with suicide. I'll shout that a hundred times. But there is hope for you if you are struggling with suicide. Please let me know. Let somebody know here. We, we would welcome you with open arms and say, we can do this together. We can get through this. We can overcome through Christ. And so please don't ever use this to say Judas wasn't saved because he died from suicide. You guys track what I just said? Hold on to that. 
because there is great love and grace for you in your suffering. This year, uh, an acquaintance of mine, a pastor here in Salem, lost his life to suicide. I've seen so many people this year, uh, clients at the counseling clinic, I mean, uh, people losing life to suicide. And it's, it, it's, just, it's just not the answer, guys. It's not. It's an epidemic we need to offer a hand of healing and help. So, okay, that's pretty hard stuff, Pastor. This is supposed to be about the squad. What in the world can we learn about the squad from a guy like Judas? How can we lay down our differences for the cause of Christ? How can we learn from the disciples of Jesus with Judas who died from suicide? Here's just a couple things. Our worship team is going to come up in a sec, leading us in a song. But, man, pay attention to these things because I was rocked this week by studying the life of Judas. Here's what we can learn. Number one, you can do your very best and still lose somebody. You can do your very best with your kids and still lose them. You can do your very best in ministry with someone in your church and still lose them. You can do your very best and be the best husband or wife that you can be and still lose your spouse. Other people's decisions are not your fault. Other people's decisions are not your fault. You can be the greatest parent and have a kid who is utterly rebellious and walks away from you and from Christ. Pastor, that's harsh. It is. And if you're struggling with that being harsh, that also means you're struggling with carrying that shame on your own, thinking it was your fault that you had a child who walked away. You can do your best, and people still make their own choices. Number two, people will let you down. How many of you are people? How many of you have been let down by people? How many of you have let people down as a people? People will let you down. Don't let that stop you from trusting. Don't let that stop you from risking. Don't let that stop you from loving and getting involved in people's life. People will let you down. Your husband will, your wife will, your mom will, your dad will, your kids will, your friends will, your pastor will, your boss will. People will let you down. Don't let it stop you from risking. Number three, you will be betrayed by people in the church. Not a good church. Oh, yeah, you will. You will be betrayed by people in the church, but Christ will never betray you. We're not here for the church. We're here for Jesus. And when we're here for Jesus, we are the church. And guess what church is filled with? Hypocrites, messed up, broken people. Suicidal people, thieves, betrayers, all here for one reason. It's because of those things. We need Christ. Number four or five, we can learn from Judas. In this squad, 
what squad? Followers of Jesus, this church, the church, in this squad, keep your eyes on Jesus, not on Judas. And that's what a lot of you do, actually. It's like, well, I'll never go to church again because one time I interacted with Judas. It's not about him. It's about him. But at the same token, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, not on Judas, but also keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and not on John. Because John was the beloved, the one who Jesus loved. Don't keep your eyes on him. John's going to let you down. John's going to be asking how he's going to die one day. John's going to be just an immature kid following after Jesus. John's going to get boiled alive in oil and exiled to the island of Patmos and write the book of Revelation. Don't worry about him. Worry about Jesus. Don't keep your eyes on Judas or John. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Number five or six, I lost count. Crisis shows us who's got your back and who doesn't. You'll be surprised who those people are. Crisis shows you who has your back and who doesn't. Just embrace it. It will happen. Let God show you who has your back. And it's a blessing. I tell you what, it's a blessing when you find out who will stand by your side when you go through hell and back. Watch who, watch who sticks around more than you watch who leaves. You hear that? Watch who sticks by your side more than you obsess over who left your side. Just a few more. This one's good. Be discerning, not discriminating. You had to have discernment for Judas. Like, yes, the disciples should have had a little bit more discernment. But we can't discriminate people because our discernment says, oh, they're trouble. Your discernment might say, this person has baggage. This person has a past. I need to be aware of some things. I'm not going to let them be my treasurer. I'm not going to let them watch my kids. But I'm not going to discriminate against them either. I'm going to give them an opportunity to overcome the past. I'm going to give them an opportunity to not burn this bridge. I'm going to give them an opportunity to come back and to see that we'll still love them. So be discerning. Please be discerning, but don't discriminate. Next, greed is the enemy of community. Greed is the enemy of community because Judas was Judas's number one priority. And if you are your own number one priority, you will never actually experience the blessing of community. The blessing of community is to have the community and the relationships you're in be the number one priority. Last two. You can never lay down your differences for the cause of Christ unless you're willing to lay it all down for the cause of Christ. What does that mean? That means like if you've got something you're holding on to, and it, you think in your mind, this has nothing to do with my differences with other people. Unless you can lay down everything for Christ, the differences you're supposed to lay down to get along with others are kind of unconsequential. Ask Jesus today, what is it I'm unwilling to lay down for you? And will you show me that so I can hand it to you? That way I can lay down my differences for unity in the body of Christ. Here's the last one. You may have done some really messed up things. How many of you have done some really messed up things? You may have done some really messed up things. But there's always hope for you in there's always room for you in a squad. 
all Judas would have had to do is repent. And guess what Jesus would have done? Received him with open, nail-scarred hands. And maybe he did. And Jesus would have sent Judas off on mission, just like Peter, who betrayed him too, just like John, just like Andrew, just like Nathaniel, just like Thomas, just like the rest. See, Judas, he was a bad guy. And so am I. So are you. And there's room for bad guys in the squad. Because God has the crazy ability and the track record of turning bad guys into Jesus guys. I know it sounds cheesy, but not good guys, but to Jesus guys who can lay down all their stuff. So learn from Judas. Yeah, his story didn't end well. But learn from him. He's, I would say he, he has just as much to teach us as Peter, as James, as John. Learn from Judas. And we can learn to lay our stuff down and mainly our pride and our arrogance and trust Christ together and have unity. Would you guys bow your heads to pray? All, that list, by the way, it's in your note. If you want to download our app, it's FC Online. It's the app on Google Play or the Apple App Store. Um, if you go to the notes for today, it's Squad Part 4. Um, I think it says Judas Iscariot. All those notes are there, lessons you can learn from Judas. I'd encourage you, like, copy and paste that somewhere. You can look at it this week. I think we've got a lot to learn from that. Um, Here's, here's something I'd like to share as you're going into a, a time and attitude of prayer. Um, some of you have a Judas in your life that you have allowed um, to prevent you from having John's and Matthews in your life. Um, I'll put it another way. Some of you are not trusting anyone because one person let you down. And I, I just want to acknowledge that today and say, I understand. That does hurt. I can recognize that with you. There, you can experience relationship again. You can experience love again. But it is going to take risking to do it. It is going to take trust that you've lost. Don't let Judas um, ruin the relationships that Jesus has for you today. And I'm not talking about romantic relationships. I'm just talking about relationship. Maybe it's family. It doesn't matter. You, if it's for you, you know what I'm talking about. One last thing is uh, the Lord showed me as I was studying this morning for this is that some of you are actually... Um, you can only see someone in your life right now as a perpetual problem. And I, I think specifically marriage here, by the way. My wife let me down so, my husband let me down so, I'll never truly open my heart again. I'll never truly trust again. I'm just in it because it's convenient. And so 
That's not, that's not the Spirit of God. That is not the Spirit of God. If Jesus Christ, who gave you chance after chance after chance, can forgive you and love you and call you and receive you, then would you allow his spirit to see others the same? I'm not saying if you're in an abusive situation, you need to stay in it. Um, I'm not saying those things, but what I'm saying is there is a time where you have to forgive and there's a time you have to move forward with the other person. And love takes radical risk. And you might say, Pastor, if I give them my heart again, they could tear it out of my chest and squash it. And you're absolutely right. And if they couldn't do that, it's not love. You do that for them, and they do it for you. So wrestle with that today. God, I thank you for your word today. I thank you from, even under the most tragic of circumstances, God, you say that you uh, work all things together for good. And so even the tragic, sad loss and death of Judas, we can learn so much. God, help us to come together in community and lay our differences aside. Lord, I speak against arrogance, pride, and judgment and ask God for an abundance of grace, an abundance of love, abundance of giving trust to others. God, if there's someone here today that does not know you, I ask in the name of Jesus that they would put faith in your life, your death, and your resurrection, which forgives them of their sins, restores them to relationship with you, and grants to them your spirit and everlasting life. God, I don't want to belittle the talk we had today about suicide. I want to just acknowledge it and bring it before you. And God, if anybody here today is suffering with shame or fear due to suicidal thoughts or plans or fantasies, God, would you just shower them, not with your condemnation, because that's not what you're doing. Would you shower them with your love? Would you shower them with your grace? Would you give them hope? God, would you give them the boldness to speak out? God, if there's a judgmental soul that's listening to my voice today, soften their heart so that they can talk to and help one who suffers with suicide. God, we trust you. God, we know that we could be Judas, and we thank you, God, by your grace. That's not where we're at today. We're moving forward. You're changing us. You're conforming us to your image. In Jesus' name. Stand as we sing this last song.